One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from across the war zone, analyse the latest diplomatic news from the US and Europe, and we speak about the rise and development of Russian fascism with historian and author Dr. Ian Garner. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 9th of November, day 259. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and historian and author, Dr. Ian Garner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's uh, continued the the very bloody campaign around the centre of the country, around the Donbass, still a lot of artillery exchanges along the lines there. Lines not changing much, and the uh, effort around Bakhmut by Russia still not achieving any, any real aims, but as a, a lot of what we think mainly mobilised people there, mobilised men, mobilised men just being chewed up by uh, by Ukrainian artillery and, and air-delivered um, munitions. Elsewhere, there's uh, just in the last couple of hours, kind of breaking news from the Herzon front. It looks as if they've either Ukraine have either managed some small tactical successes there, or uh, possibly and or Russia has started this fall back as we as we were anticipating. A number of bridges been blown by Russia, which indicates they are. They are coming. They are coming back towards their own lines and and um, uh, aiming to stop any Ukrainian forces chasing after them. But in particular, around the that sort of line on that on that blob north and west of the Dnipro River around Herzon City itself. So to the the western edge of that line and and the east down the river itself, there seem to be two big pushes there, um, or big. It's all it's all relative, but of of some. So with we think sort of five, six, seven kilometres, um, which is reasonably um, a reasonably large chunk of of land at um, compared to recent movements. So not so much in the middle, but but um, the west and the east. West obviously of most importance there because that's right next to Hezon City. We think Ukrainian forces are only maybe five k's out, well within um, indirect fire range. So that's happening as we speak. We'll obviously continue to track that through the day. Other things to be aware of. Um, so the Iranian state-run uh, news outlet Nur News Agency has said that Russia's National Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrushev arrived in Tehran uh, yesterday, uh, likely to discuss Russia's desire and demand um, for Iranian ballistic missiles, particularly the Fateh 110, which has a 300-kilometer range, and the Zolfagar, which has 700 kilometers. Both very accurate. We think they have about a five-meter CEP, and just as a, a refresh, CEP is, means circular error probable uh, or circular error of probability, i.e. a circle around the intended target within which 50% of the missiles will hit. So if you have a small CEP like five meters, you're saying that 50% of, your, of, your, of these weapons... Um, will land within five metres of, of the intended target. So that's very, very accurate. The downside, obviously, to, to CEP, I know you've got to measure it somehow, but the thing about CEP is that the other 50% can land anywhere. Now, the majority of the remaining 50% land fairly close to the CEP, I'll accept that, but it does indicate that some munitions will go will go anywhere, basically, um, and hence you can get a lot of, um, a lot of casualties from so-called precision 
munitions. But anyway, back to back to Iran. Um, so Petrushev, we think, went with his son, Dmitry, Dmitry Petrushev, which is he's been seen with uh, with Putin. We think Putin's possibly grooming him as one of his possible successors. That's that's a bit of speculation. But that is um, doing some of the chat around the analysis um, core. And so Petrushev went to visit the Iranian Supreme National Security Council Secretary Ali Shimkani. Um, they uh, he'll also go and meet other high ranking Iranian political uh, figures, military and economic figures. Uh, Iran, probably quite keen to show how, how vital they are to uh, to Russia's war effort here. Um, they're also probably looking to shore up international support or, or well, not international support, one, one other country's support, Russia's support, regarding their nuclear ambitions. So just to, let's have a think about the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, as it's sometimes referred to easier more easily referred to signed in 2015 which put restrictions on iran's nuclear program in return for sanctions relief donald trump withdrew from that deal in 2018 and ever since then the us and iran have been trying to return to the original deal can't agree on steps to get there and, and meanwhile iran is trying to develop nuclear weapons according to um, most most western analysts so they might be looking here some sort of, sort of quid pro quo from Russia to help with their with their nuclear ambitions. Sticking on Iran for the moment, news story that came out that broke last night from um, uh, friend and colleague Debs Haynes at, the, at Skype. I was able to stand it up myself elsewhere. Um, Iran, we think, has been given by Russia um, an N-law, British N-law, the uh, next generation light anti-tank weapon, the, the shoulder-launched anti-tank weapon, as well as, um, we, we think, a US Stinger, uh, anti-aircraft and US Javelin anti-tank missile and a load of cash, 120 million, Debs was saying, um, in order partly to, to buy Iranian support. Uh, Sky was saying that the cash cash and weapons went into Tehran on Russian military aircraft on August the 20th. Uh, now, obviously, the, the concern here is that Iran will be able to reverse engineer these these missiles if they've not got them already, or or something something like it. Got the plans, um, and therefore, if you if you reverse engineer Western technology, you might be able to build it yourself. A lot of that is dependent upon components and uh, like microprocessors, for example, that are subject to sanctions at the moment. So, not necessarily an immediate um, gotcha. And you do have to you do have to understand that, and this might be the relu- explain some of the reluctance by partner nations to to gift military aid to ukraine as soon as you touch the enemy on the battlefield you have to expect and accept that your weapons are going to fall into the enemy's hands mistakes are going to happen people are going to get killed supply convoys will be ambushed arms dumps will be overrun etc etc so the second that that britain started supplying end laws and the u.s started supplying javelin and, and stingers to ukraine they would have factored it in that this will end some of them will end up in in russian hands and therefore it's not a massive leap of imagination to say well what else could they do with it so i think this is um notable i don't say it's massively significant because like I say, reverse engineering and building your own like for like does really take some doing. And I think that would have been factored into the decision by, in this case, Britain and the US, but all nations supporting Ukraine in this way, that this is a, a very strong possibility in, a, in a, a, such a fluid atmosphere um, of modern warfare. Uh, and the fact that these weapons are going means that they would have taken the political decision. That that's, that's a risk that they can they can take. Uh, just one last little little bit today. Uh, the UK Defence Intelligence had a comment on the Black Sea Bridge. Remember the Kirsch Bridge that was um, uh, that was hit a couple of months ago. Uh, so they're now saying that it's not expected to be fully operational until September next year. Uh, closed yesterday. The road bridge was closed yesterday to allow the replacement of a 64 metre span, and three more such spans are going to be required uh, to complete the road section that was damaged. And then um, they wanted to open that by the 20th of December. But interestingly, UK defence intelligence here saying, this is a quote, a briefing provided to President Putin added that works to the other carriageway will will cause disruption to road traffic until March 2023, unquote. Um, And they also say the rail bridge has been contracted for completion in September next year. I just thought that was quite an interesting comment to say in a briefing provided to President Putin. It's like, wow, (laughs) you've got some good sourcing there if you're able to come out so so boldly and and, and state that. But I mean, this is this means that Russia's ability to reinforce 
uh, Crimea and and through Crimea, the sort of southern sector of the Hezon Oblast um, is very, very limited now through through Crimea, through the Kerch Bridge. They've still got the land corridor through Mariupol and down and down um, across the top of the Sea of Azov and down into the into the region that way. But um, it's much slower, far, far longer in many in many respects. Um, uh, and it, it, once you limit the number of routes that you're able to take, it, it makes the, the targeteers on the other side makes their job just a little bit a little bit easier. So interesting to see that the although the bridge didn't fall completely in the in the attack uh, a few weeks ago. It has had quite a significant, um, quite a significant dent to Russia's uh, ability to keep itself supplied. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Francis, can I turn to you before we go to Ian? There's a couple of important political and diplomatic updates I think we should talk about. Uh, the first is, of course, the unfolding uh, results from the U.S. midterms, but there's also an interesting story from the EU. Can you talk us through both of these? Certainly. Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. As you say, the midterms are the big story. Yesterday, we spoke at length, of course, about the predictions that the vote might be a rejection of Joe Biden's presidency and that the Republicans would win back control of both the House and the Senate. However, at the time of us recording this, that red wave, as it's often articulated, has seemingly failed to materialise. Indeed, the mood at the White House improved as the night progressed, with Joe Biden showing a photograph of himself happily congratulating some of the Democratic winners by phone. Now, what's the significance of this to Ukraine? Well, as we spoke about yesterday, there was a, a general feeling that a Republican victory may, and I say may because we've had quite a lot of interaction with American listeners in the last 24 hours who've, who've questioned some of the analysis that, that some journalists have offered, um, have an impact on how Ukraine is, is viewed. Um, and, and so this less than red wave, as I say, may well prove influential. And indeed, uh, Phillips O'Brien, professor of strategic studies at St. Andrews, he's written for us um, many times in the past, very prominent uh, commentator on on the war in Ukraine. He has tweeted today, and I'll read it in full because this is an interesting piece of analysis on, on terms of the significance of the midterms. He said, quote, don't underestimate the importance of these midterm results for Ukraine. With the Democrats outperforming expectations, probably holding the Senate and Trumpite Republicans doing poorly, support for Ukraine might even solidify. Democratic support for Ukraine looked solid. Now the Republicans pro-Ukraine wing, which has been a little subdued by the Trumpite pro-Putin talking points, should also strengthen. Fascinating to see hardcore Trumpites like Lake and Masters straddling. The Biden administration can decide what support it wants to give to Ukraine, confidence that any opposition will now be more muted. It also means that Russia has to plan for two more years of this aid. That can't be comforting. So as I say, there's been some questioning of that kind of analysis of what a Republican victory would have meant. But nonetheless, I think that's indicative of the general trend of analysis on the Ukraine question. So that's the American picture as things stand at around 1.18pm UK time. And as I say, things are very much an evolving uh, story there. Um, but the other story, David, that you talk about is an interesting one from the European Union, a little bit closer to home for us here in Britain. Um, although, of course, we are no longer in the European Union, it should be said. Um, so, uh, in essence, to summarise this story, uh, very interesting that the finance minister of the Czech Republic, of course, one of the most ardent supporters of Ukraine um, since the war began, has been sending them lots of tra- tra- tanks, for instance. He has said it's very difficult, and that's a direct quote, to look Ukrainians in the eye and explain why the EU has broken promises to send billions of euros in financial support to Kiev. This is following a meetings in Brussels today, urging his fellow EU finance Minister to ensure that a new aid uh, package of about 18 billion euros is approved in time for payments to start next year. Now, Brussels has only sent about 3 billion euros, we think, so far of a promised 9 billion in the financial assistance packages that were pledged back around May time, I believe, with the money sort of mired in negotiations between the EU countries. As we've talked at length in the past, there is uh, concern, I think it's fair to say, among some European countries about this idea of a blank check. Hence why America, as I say, there are some American advisors who've been saying to, to Ukraine that, you know, you need to be at least speaking in overtures about some kind of future peace plan, even if it's not actually viable, just to keep some of these European parties on side. And I think we can speculate about which um, parties they may will be. Um, 
So, as I say, interesting remarks from him. This, of course, comes on the back of Kiev struggling really to fill a, a massive black hole for basic services and cover its its budget deficit during the brutal invasion. Um, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, estimates the Ukraine will need about three to four billion in foreign aid a month for its public services alone. So, it just speaks to the vast amounts of financial support, support that Ukraine needs, not only in terms of, of of weapon support, but also just in terms of keeping those basic function um, basic services functioning. So uh, a story that no doubt we will return to, but one that is significant and speaks to some of the tensions that are currently taking place in the EU. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis, for that. Uh, Doctor in Ghana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would you just like to start uh, by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you work on and how you do it? Morning, everybody, or good afternoon if you're in Europe. I only just got up a few minutes ago, uh, as I'm in, uh, I'm in Canada. I am a historian broadly, although I cross over into areas of literary and cultural studies and political science. And what I'm really interested in is national identity. How is it that ordinary people come to shape their relationship both to each other and society, but also in particular to the state? And in Russia, where they tip into worlds of radicalism. And right now, of course, the question is, what's coming next in Russia? We know that there are these big divisions in Russian society between people who, broadly speaking, approve of the war, people who don't. But what's coming in the younger generation, those who are sort of 16, maybe 18 and below, who are really growing up in this increasingly militaristic, radicalised environment? Well, let's let's start at the beginning. Your, your research looks at Russian fascism, its development and its use by Vladimir Putin. Can, can we go back to the beginning? Where does ro- modern Russian fascism come from? So I think first, before we think about the Russian orangi- origins of fascism, we, ha- we have to think about what fascism actually is. And fascism tends to emerge from periods of chaos, periods of strife, periods where meaning and reality seems to fragment. Of course, that happened in Germany in the late 1910s and in the early 1920s, and it happened in Russia in the late 1980s and the 1990s. And under fascism or fascistic ideologies tend to focus around recreating the past, but not just any past, not a real past, a mythical past, a past that's never really existed. And we saw that in Germany with, you know, dreams of Teutonic and medieval knights and empires. And we see it in Russia today, where Russia is drawing on strands of history that go back hundreds of years. Ideas of Russian Messianism, the idea that Russia is the sole defender of Christianity in a world that is seeking to obliterate not just Russia, but civilization. Of course, we see that in the World War II narrative that the Putin government has put together. And we see that today in the way that the state draws on images of the Soviet Union as a time of harmony and wholeness, a time when people were safe and life was good and better. It draws on elements of the Russian Empire. And of course, and this is what really fascinates me, the Putin government for the last 20 years, along with society and people who have participated in this project, has been creating a myth of the present as being a time of great triumph of this sort of mythical wholeness, even as, as everybody knows, Russia has struggled terribly and living standards haven't really improved that much for many people over the last couple of decades. Well, thank you so much for that, Ian. Can we talk a little bit more then? So you've laid the foundations of the 80s and the 90s. Um, what happened in the 90s and the 2000s? How does, how does Putin use and embrace these ideas over the past 20 years? What patterns and actions have you seen? So we know, we know that in the 90s, there were Russian fascist, neo-Nazi and neo-fascist groups knocking around. And of course, Zhirinovsky uh, is the famous political proponent of a sort of neo-fascism in the early 1990s. And there's always been this debate in Russia over westernizing versus going the Russian route. So becoming more attached to Europe or becoming more insular, more Russian and Russia having a great power status. And Putin essentially came into power promising that all the traumas, all the embarrassments and the humiliations of the 1990s were over. 
that Russia would now be strong. And, and he literally used this word in his first speech as president on New Year's Eve 1999, that we would be living in a fairy tale world. And of course, fairy tales are distinct from reality. And so we often hear about this term of managed democracy, the idea that the Putin state has created a kind of pretend electoral system with pretend parties. But what we also see is that it's created this kind of stage managed culture in which it's constantly inflating and putting on performances that demonstrate Russia's military might and at the same time encourage ordinary people to participate in what are increasingly militarized rituals in day-to-day life. And of course, the big one that everybody sees every year is 9th of May, Victory Day, when everybody goes out, dresses up and talks about the Russian sacrifices. And of course, they tend to neglect the other nationalities involved in those sacrifices in World War II, when many, many people died in order to supposedly save the world. And here we go back to Russian Zionism. That's really where we link to today. The idea that war, that sacrifice is somehow going to rebirth the nation. That's the thing that's suddenly going to push us over the edge into the realization of this glorious mythical world. And we'll all be living in this fairy tale utopia. Do you get a sense from your research and reading of how Vladimir Putin himself relates to this myth-making. I mean, how much of it do you think he genuinely believes? How much of it is useful for his political ends? How do you see him in relation to everything you've been talking about? I think he's he's always been a, a nationalist. He's always believed that Russia should be a great power. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Lots of people would disagree with me, but I I would say that today he is a real believer in the ideology. And when you listen to him speak, he's perfectly fluent, perfectly conversant in this language of myth. And of course, some people would say, well, it's all just a pretense. And I would say to those, well, it may be. But if all he ever does, if all he ever says is in the language of this sort of fascist mythology, as he is doing right now, and has been doing really for the last 10 years or so, ever since he came back to the presidency, then what what other conclusion can we possibly make? And really the important thing at this point then is to think what's the effect on ordinary people? And I'm sure we'll get into this. When this is the language that they hear, the language that they speak, the language that they are taught in schools, it almost doesn't matter what reality is, because that's the reality they create for themselves, especially on social media. You've mentioned um, this this mythic future, uh, this titanic struggle between good and evil. So I guess one interesting question is where where does the church stand in all this? What what is what is the kind of relationship developed between the political class and the religious class? The history of the church and the state in in Russia has always been vexed and varied, but the church and the state have always been extremely close, except, of course, in the Soviet period when the church was completely subjugated to the state. And today, I would argue that the church and the state are almost indivisible, that the church propounds a message of military sacrifice. And we've seen the patriarchs speak from the pulpit in the great military cathedral in Moscow that they just opened on Victory Day a couple of years ago. That was a vast state project. If you haven't seen it, go look at some pictures of it. It's absolutely wild. And we've seen the patriarch give speeches along the lines of, young people, it is your duty, your holy duty to go out and sacrifice yourself, to die for the nation. And by doing so, you will become saintly and you will be creating this utopia on earth. And of course, there is something in this story of messianic sacrifice that resembles the story of Jesus, right? The passion of the Christ. It's blasphemous. It's a complete distortion of what Christianity is. But the church and the state, in terms of the narratives that they're producing for people, are really on the same page. You mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about this impact on ordinary people. So so let's do that. Um, I guess one question that that strikes me is, and this might be a bit simplistic, but how, how much of a sense do you get of, you know, how, how much do ordinary ple- people really buy into this and actually believe this? Um, but you know, p- please answer the question as you would like. But that's that's a thought that's occurring to me. 
What is interesting here is that, of course, when you look at opinion polls, opinion polls are roughly split. 20% of people are radically for the war, 20% of people absolutely opposed. Everybody else is kind of swimming around in the middle, swayed a little one way, a little the other, or claim that they don't care, they're not interested. But I'm really interested in the way that the state has been using social media to create worlds for people and create groups permit groups and encourage groups where the language of war, the language of fascism is spread. So we see everybody's seen these symbols, the Z symbols, the memes of kids dressed up going to war, the stuff that's extremely offensive and racist and often homophobic, targeted uh, Russia's enemies, which need to be destroyed somehow to create the future. And this stuff just builds up in the environment, and especially over the last 10 years, the government has cut down, deliberately restricted alternative points of view. So that increasingly what we see is that the only way that you can be any kind of a Russian, whether you would proclaim yourself to be a radical nationalist or not, is to agree that LGBT communities should not exist, that Ukraine should not or cannot exist or somehow needs to be subjugated to Russia. It's a process of elimination. And the government, of course, feeds this material in through bots, through troll farms. But there are a great many people who believe it and who share it. And of course, if you follow Russian social media, if you have Russians in your social media feeds, if you visit VK or Telegram groups, this stuff, this material just constantly flashes past you, flashes in front of your eyes because your friends like it, your brothers like it, somebody that you went to school with shares a, a piece of, you know, Ukrainianophobia, a phobic meme or some video, a lie, a provocation or something like that. It creates an environment in which the only way you know to speak about the world, the only certainty you have is this language. Everything else is under attack. You mentioned um, the impact of all of this on Russians, of Russia's youth. You've written a book which is coming out about um, the, this, this generation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found when you were researching that? So when I was looking into this book, as, as I mentioned at the beginning here, I was really curious about this very young generation, the generation that's in school now. And I think it's fair to say that this process of depluralization this process of restricting the meaning of what it can be to be Russia, to be Russian, has been extremely effective over the last few years. And Putin and the regime are putting a lot of money into youth groups successfully, growing paramilitary groups that kids can join, whether voluntarily or having been voluntold at school or in the community or by a parent, by the parent's employer, where they are learning that Russia is the greatest country in the world, Russia does have this messianic role, and that the greatest thing that they can do as a Russian, as a human being, is to sacrifice themselves for the nation. And of course, this is there is this inherent contradiction in fascism, the obsession with the future, the obsession with creating utopia, but the idea that the youngest generation always has to sacrifice themselves is there. But young people are increasingly engaging in this militaristic language, in this violent world. They're learning military skills. And I believe today one of the Russian politicians, I don't recall who it was, declared that as of next year, every Russian child will have to take military training in schools. This is a world in which war is becoming a normal way of life. Schools are becoming increasingly patriotic, increasingly about military sacrifice, increasingly homophobic. It is becoming hard to be anything but the ideal Russian. All young children are seeing are these images, these vision of what it means to be a, a good Russian. And these things are appealing. There is a sense of belonging here that they're not offered if they want to, for example, grow interested in LGBT communities that they might look out for in the West. Can you explain for us a little bit? I mean, you mentioned, and um, we all know we're familiar with the, the Z symbol in the Russian invasion. Um, well, are there any other symbols we should be aware of? And if so, what are they and what do they mean? So, I mean, there is a whole world of symbols out there. It's almost impossible to answer the question because there are so many. And there is a deliberate rationale behind this. 
in that fascism is a great consumer, a voracious consumer of symbol and meaning. It will crunch up material from the Soviet era, from the Tsarist era. It will create new symbols, as we've seen with Z and its little brother V. And it will throw all of these into this great mythical time frame and claim that these are all evidence of Russia's greatness in the present. And so when you see in particular the Soviet symbols, they're not really alluding to the idea that we're literally going to recreate the Soviet Union. They're this point of bonding whereby sharing a Soviet flag on your social media profile, what you're doing is you're saying, I believe in this vision of Russia as this great place of harmony where everybody can be together. And of course, then your friends can like and share and click and say, I believe too. And it almost creates this sense of kind of a non-stop fascist rally. You don't need to wait for the government to organise that rally on social media because it's constantly going on. Every time you post your clip of somebody waving a Russian flag, somebody waving an old Soviet flag, an old Tsarist flag, or any of the new symbols, in a sense they're each individually meaningless, but taken together they create this, these pools where people belong. Outside of those pools, you're on your own. You're Western. You're liberal. You're queer, you're bad, you're broken, you're traumatised, you're just as fragmented as the 1990s were. But when you belong to these images, when you take part in them, well, suddenly you belong to something much better. Just a last question from me before I uh, invite Francis and Dom. Um, You've sort of talked about this a little bit, but I wondered if you'd sum it up for us. A line from your writing that stood out to me was your description of modern Russia as a, quote, a world where pretense has become the norm. Could you unpack that for us before I um, uh, hand over to Dom and Francis? So what I mean by this is that everybody knows that in Russia, reality is not great. Everybody knows that they're losing the war. They see the bodies coming home. They hear the body counts. They hear the stories from the front. Everybody knows that living standards in Russia are not great, that this utopia has not arrived and it probably never will arrive. But it suits everybody. It's much more convenient to escape this sort of re-traumatising world where you have to confront the real truth that Russia needs to be basically torn up and rebuilt from the ground up if it really wants to become a better place, either for individuals, for communities, or purely even in terms of economics and productivity. It is much more convenient to look away from the truth, pretend that you don't know that things are going badly, and instead to share the picture of the troops waving the Russian flag or some Russian troops supposedly rescuing Ukrainian children and imagine that good things are happening instead. And of all the many fabulously insane people I spoke to to research this book, all of them genuinely told me with, with real conviction that we think that Russia is doing the right thing, that Russia is Russia is good. Even as I would ask them, but, you know, what about Butcher? What about the people that are dying? Is war really the way that you need to do this? What about the falls in living standards? None of that matters anything. It's easier to pretend. And of course, the government has been pretending, as I've noted from the beginning, than to confront reality. Thank you so much for that, Ian. Dom and Francis, you've been listening to all of this. Do you have any questions? I do, I do, if I could jump in there. Um, Ian, hi, good morning, uh, good evening. It's it's Dom here. Thank you so much for, for taking part in this. Uh, how do you walk away? How do you, sorry, how do you walk a country or a society back from these myths? And where can we look through history or, or hopefully today? Where can we look for examples where it's, you can walk a country back safely from these myths? It, it looks like it's only going in, it can only go in one direction because so much is invested by the society in these things. That is, I mean, it's, it's the big question, right? That the war today is going to end. It might be in six months, it might be in six years, but it has to end and, and Putin will die. The regime will change. But the problem that I see is that the current generation, you know, if you're five years old now, then what you're learning for the next five, 10 years is going to define a lot of what you believe as an adult. And so it's important that we do, we do act. And it's striking to me how little we've intervened in 
Russia and use the same approaches that they've used on us through social media back at them. And I don't envision that a solution necessarily needs to be military. And I don't envision the military being involved in this because the danger as soon as we start to interfere in Russia's social media space is that, and you can see this when you talk to, and in the last chapter of my book, I explore this, um, when you talk to folks who've worked, for example, with North Koreans, with uh, folks who've been involved with ISIS, the danger is as soon as you start criticizing, as soon as your advice or your attempt at breaking through to reality appears to come from you, the enemy, the West, that you get a knee-jerk reaction from the people that you're trying to talk to, and they actually fall deeper into the cult and more strongly towards that, those sort of groups of belonging that they, they take comfort from. But I think what we should do, and there are experts working on this, is flood Russia's social media space. And we can do this. It's technologically extremely possible because it's not entirely isolated yet. Flood Russia's social media space with stories of alternate ways of being, especially for young Russians. And that means showing young Russians that they can be Russian. They can be orthodox, but also caring. They can be orthodox, but, for example, choose not to join a paramilitary youth group. We can flood their nationalist groups with very slightly modified versions of nationalism that are less dangerous. Just as a starting point, so that we start to pull people back from this warlike mindset in which sacrifice is acceptable in which sacrifice is perhaps not just acceptable, but demanded or required in order to be the ideal Russian. And this would be a long and complex project, but the benefits of doing so are really innumerable. It will prevent or help to prevent, this is just part of a package, future wars. It may improve the political situation within the country, although that is, of course, difficult given the hold on power the state has. And certainly what it will do is it will save a lot of money because influence operations are much, much cheaper than going to war and funding weapons. If I could just come back on this, I'm just riffing on, on, on Dom's question and your response to it. I mean, it's clear from your fascinating analysis that, that this fascism is, is here to stay in some form. And uh, obviously, typically, to Dom's question, there are only two ways in which you can defeat a, an ideological movement. One is a very long-term one, which under sustained pressure, it becomes self-defeating and, and eventually implodes, which is what, of course, we saw during the Cold War with communism. The alternative, of course, is with looking at Nazi Germany or with Japanese fascism, if we want to articulate it as such, is military occupation. Now, of course, I would suggest that that is uh, neither desirable nor plausible, but those are really the only two options as I see it. And indeed, your response about the need for us to flood and be fighting a much more effective information battle would speak to that. But my question is, is do do you think in terms of the West response to what's happened in Ukraine thus far, in, in particularly in relation to Russia, has been effective? Do you think there have been mistakes that have been made? I mean, there have obviously there's been this policy of of, of trying to remove Western companies, uh, shut off lots of Western businesses that might be bleeding in some of that information that you describe. Do you think that's a successful strategy or do you think there have been mistakes that have been made? I mean, I, I think it's morally, I think it's the right strategy, but will it be effective in changing minds? I doubt it, because what you're going to get is this blowback reaction where, you know, whatever Russian or Western company leaves. So McDonald's is the best example. McDonald's leaves. Well, it's just so easily interpreted by the Russia st Russian state as part of its sort of great civilizational battle with the West and saying, well, of course, we don't need McDonald's because Russia can create its own better McDonald's, right? And lo and behold, it created, of course, Nitochka, the new McDonald's chain, which is a note-for-note ripoff, right? But has it really changed any people's minds? Does anybody really care? No, I doubt it. The people that are pro-Western in Russia are just going to say, well, this is more evidence that we're doomed. The people that are pro-war are going to say, well, this is more evidence that this is the right thing to do. And finally, we're we're purifying the country of these deleterious influences. 
I think any any information war we fight has to be much more subtle. And there was actually an almost a very good example. Some of you might remember at the beginning of the war, Arnold Schwarzenegger published a video where he was he was sitting in an office and he was sort of reaching out one to one to Russians and saying I remember when I was a teenager growing up in Austria, I went off to meet this guy, Yuri Petrov, who was a very famous Russian powerlifter or weightlifter. And it was, you know, it was lovely and it was was so touching on a human level. There is a really good example of saying, here, you can be strong, you can be masculine, you can be proud of your nation, but you don't have to fight a war. The problem with the video those of you who remember it, you, you, and if you don't, you can go and look it up, is that in the second half, Schwarzenegger went on the attack and said, your government's lying to you. And as soon as you say your government's lying to you, well, you've lost the audience. They're never going to believe you. So all you have to do is these, you know, tiny nudges saying, here is an alternate method, an alternate model of being. Here is a slightly different way that you can present reality. Fascinating. And just one more question on this theme, if I may. One of the critiques of of Russian history that's often made is that when reform or revolution comes, it often comes from the top down, whether that be in the form of of revolutionary czars like uh, like the um, uh, what's his name? Alexander the second. Um, so Alexander II, or of course in the form of Lenin, or, 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 or any of these kind of revolutionary figures, and indeed one could could say Vladimir Putin as well. So, do you think that we have to wait for another Gorbachev to come along before there can be some kind of profound reform to this fascism in Russia, or do you think that actually it is possible for there to be something from the ground up as people begin to question the the lies effectively that they've been told over a sustained period? I'm not necessarily a huge fan of those readings of history that are very sort of great men focused. Yes, of course, personalities seem to have had a big role in Russian history. But to take Gorbachev as an example, a lot of the reforms that he introduced, he was forced to do so by economic conditions, by foreign policy conditions, by the disasters of his predecessors. So, for example, the war in Afghanistan. And of course, when he introduced those reforms, what happened wasn't really what he intended. He didn't intend to collapse the Soviet Union. And so it's a good example of how we often think that people are in charge, but they're not quite as much in charge as you would imagine. So I think there is there is possibility for ground up reform in Russia. The problem is that the opposition is absolutely fractured, absolutely fragmented. There is, if patriots or budding patriots are invited inside these warm images of belonging, of flag-waving rallies, of glittering, shining parades on television and lovely pop concerts. If you oppose the regime, it is a very lonely fight, both internally, psychologically, but also where do you go? Who do you, who do you join with to create a revolution in Russia? Because the state is always there. And one of the things I did for the book was not just to interview people who are fascist youth, effectively, but also those who are trying to oppose the regime, who are young. And they find that they fight themselves as much as anybody else. That they are utterly convinced that the government is constantly watching. That nobody else cares. And we, they're in for a really tough time. And, and this, this change is not going to come without outside support. And it's a risky business to provide outside support to, to revolutionaries and opposition members. But I genuinely think the collective West has very little to lose from doing so because the Russian state already believes that the West is at war with Russia. Ian, can I come back on an, uh, one other question, please? I, I, I get why so many people might buy into the myth. That's, that's un- understandable. But those in this... On the inside, inside the Kremlin, those close to power, close to Putin, once they're on the inside, they must have seen, they must know that that the economy is hollow, that the military was absolutely, uh, I mean, riddled with corruption um, and, you know, the the theft of equipment meant that they they must have known 
that any kind of opposition going into Ukraine and they were going to be on a sticky wicket. So how many of these people who actually understand the real picture do you think there are in anywhere near the positions of power? And are they just just unable to say this to Putin? Is, Is he himself unable to accept that that it might not all be as per the myth that he has helped to generate? Well, I mean, this is this is the great, great question, isn't it? And this is these this is the great question that we had through most of the 20th century. What does the person in the Kremlin really think or really believe? And the answer is we're, we're not going to know for a long time. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me if there was a real cognitive dissonance. Uh, dissonance, I apologise, Freudian slip there, cognitive dissonance in that everybody, as I, as I pointed out, everybody knows what's really happening and yet still people are convinced of a different truth, a different kind of truth, that they buy into their own myths and they buy into their own propaganda to such an extent that they just can't reconcile reality with the big lie. Ian, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, Thank you so much for your time. We're starting to run out, unfortunately, of time. Is there anything you haven't talked about that you think is important to mention? Oh, boy, so so many things. But I think what I would like everybody to understand is that what I've I've outlined in some ways is a worst-case scenario, right? Russia could collapse tomorrow. But we have to be aware that this, this war whether it's a war in Ukraine or a war with the West, a war in the Baltics, a war within Russia itself, is going to go on for a long time. We have to be ready that this is, this is going to be one of the defining phenomena of our age and that simple midterm elections and sort of two-month calculuses and deliveries of arms, that's not going to be the end of it. You're going to be hearing about this for years and it's going to be very easy to get bored of it. But please, please don't, please keep paying attention. Well, thank you, Ian, so much for your time. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'll just go to all of you just for your final thoughts. Um, Francis, can I come to you first? Certainly, thank you. Well, yesterday we had an in-depth discussion about the Russians' defensive measures around Herzon. And I just wanted to thank listeners who've been in touch with me and have posted comments on Twitter or on YouTube trying to offer examples of where there have been more successful defensive fortifications built uh, rather than the we were trying to think yesterday if you recall uh, of, of successful ones and I was positing that really in the modern age it's very difficult to think of defensive fortifications that have been successful I cited the Maginot line the Siegfried line and the Atlantic Wall as all of examples of, of impenetrable fortifications that were then of course broken in the Second World War whether by the Germans or by uh, the allies but um, some really interesting feedback from from listeners particularly one on on YouTube who talks about um, how actually in the Battle of Kursk in 1943, the Soviets used a combination of field works and entrenchments stretching back many miles to the rear of their front lines and mobile reserves to defeat a very strong uh, German attack. Another example as well uh, being the uh, Silo Heights German lines, which cost the Soviets a butcher's bill. Um, the, Western Allied, the Western Allied armies would have he- very much hesitated to pay, but the Soviets were, were willing to. But nonetheless, a general consensus has formed with those that I've spoken to in the last 24 hours, which is that in short, it's very, very difficult to form a very effective impenetrable defensive line. Indeed, all one can really hope is that you can slow down progress. And indeed, if the momentum remains with the Ukrainians in terms of weapons and everything else that we've talked about at length for so many months now, I think that all of these defensive measures that we can do that look effective in propaganda images is slow down the, the Ukrainian advance rather than being seen as as, as a real game changer in the defensive space. But as I, said, I just wanted to, to thank listeners for, for their contributions. Always fascinating to get into these historical topics. So uh, thank you very much. And do drop me a DM on, on Twitter if you want to continue the conversation. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. I'll go to Dom Nichols next. Thanks, David. I'll just leave you, uh, not so much final thought, but final breaking news. Just keep your eyes on Hezon. I'm looking at um, our colleague Natalia Vasileva's uh, Twitter feed, and she's saying that Russian officials in Hezon have confirmed that Kirill uh, Stremosov, who's the deputy head of the Russian administration there, he was the face of the Russian occupation in Hezon, and he signed the annex, so-called annexation agreement on behalf of Kherson in the Kremlin in September, uh, has been killed in a car crash. So this is breaking news. Details, no, well, no details yet. 
are yet to be confirmed, but that will be significant if it is um, if it is partisan activity. That will be very significant if it's part of this. As I said, we've for the last couple of hours now we've been been looking at a number of of moves uh, by Ukrainian forces in in that in the area of Hezon around around the city. If it's all to do with that, then that could indicate that something significant is happening there. So keep your eye on Hezon this afternoon. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Uh, Ian, as our guest, would you like the very final thought? Sorry, I'm just sort of blown away by that breaking news about Stremosov, who's such a fascinating and weird figure and an indictment of Russia's, Russia's state capacity that he should have any leadership role. Um, but I, I wish everybody well, and especially if we have Ukrainian listeners, then I hope you're all safe and sound. And just finally, Ian, how can listeners follow you? And can you tell us a little bit about the book you're releasing next year? So listeners can follow me on Twitter at IRGana and my forthcoming book, Z Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth, will be available next spring, but you can pre-order it already on Amazon. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.